When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There is this moment from April that I've been thinking about a lot this week. It's when the Amazon Labor Union won the long-shot vote to unionize its first warehouse in the U.S., a facility called JFK 8 in Staten Island. And it was simply huge, considering this was Amazon, a company as responsible as any for transforming American work life over the last generation. It was a massive, joyful victory for the small upstart union known as the ALU. Uh, we, we got the juggler. We went for the juggler. And we went for the top dog because we want every other industry, every other uh, business to know that uh, things have changed. We're going we to unionize. We're not going to quit our jobs anymore. But when I asked Noam Scheiber, who covers labor for The New York Times, what he remembered from that moment, he had a very different mental image. One from before all the jubilation. You could watch the video of the count. You know, the NLRB was streaming that on, on Zoom. And um, you just saw all these kind of lawyers in suits. And then Chris Smalls, the president of the ALU, sitting there in his kind of, in his red jumpsuit with his knees kind of bouncing up and down, you know, and, and every time we get a little closer, his, his knees would become like a little more, uh, a little more frenetic. Uh, and you could just tell that um, the air was going out of the Amazon side and he was just getting closer to this thing that he'd kind of dreamed about, but didn't even entirely believe was possible himself. How would you describe their mood now? You know, I think um, we've come a long way. Um, it's only been six months or so, but it probably feels like years to them. I think initially um, they were clearly unprepared for the crush of attention and, frankly, pressure that would um, would be placed on them after they won. Everybody, especially reporters, wanted a piece of Chris Smalls and Derek Palmer, the union leaders. Amazon tried to overturn the vote, filing 25 objections, which meant almost a month of hearings. Then the union lost a vote at a smaller New York warehouse in May. Plus, there was conflict within the ALU over what its priorities should be. So it was a, it was a very tumultuous and unsettled time. Um, I think now, um, fast-forwarding several months, um, they've had a, a pretty important decision by the hearing officer who was hearing Amazon's objections to the election outcome. And that officer recommended that the election stand, that Amazon's objections be set aside. So that was certainly a, a big shot in the arm. They have also um, really started to focus on organizing at that warehouse, at JFK 8. Um, in the last month or two, they brought in some professional organizers. Um, they've held trainings. They've held a national organizing call. So I think now they are sort of where they hope to be a few weeks after the election. But it hmm. took, instead of a few weeks, it took several months. Now the ALU is facing another vote, this time at a warehouse near Albany. And the votes will be tallied on Tuesday. This is a big deal. I think the ALU folks would say, look, um, 
Albany is important. We're obviously trying to reach out to other warehouses. We want to expand this movement, but it's not the end-all and be-all for us. Um, the end-all and be-all is really getting a contract on Staten Island. So the, the ALU folks have, have downplayed it a bit. But look, it's, it's hard to deny that this will reflect on the ALU one way or the other. Today on the show, another round in the fight between Amazon and its upstart union. Is it just one vote in one warehouse or a larger referendum on a new kind of labor movement? I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Noam says the Amazon Labor Union has had a pretty good fall. Just before Labor Day, Amazon's challenge to the Staten Island Union vote was rejected, though that process isn't entirely finished. And the ALU brought in more organizers to work on the effort at JFK 8. They threw a barbecue in September, and Noam stopped by. You know, this uh, particular barbecue, I think, was um, fortuitously timed because Amazon had just announced uh wage increases really in, in every warehouse across the country. But at JFK 8, the raise was was lower than at most places. It turned out that the wage increases at JFK 8 were between 25 cents and 75 cents an hour, depending on your tenure and your level. And people were very frustrated. People come out on their break and they go to the ALU barbecue and they're like, man, you know, I wasn't necessarily that amped up for the ALU before I had that meeting with my supervisor this morning, but now, you know, I'm kind of into it. And um, so I think they benefit, you know, uh, from from uh, some some lucky timing there. Um, and, and Chris, you know, being the savvy um, a marketer uh, that he is and kind of having you know, pretty sophisticated political antenna um, was was all over this. You know, he was like, we're not falling for that 25 cent raise. Jeff Bezos, you're going to have to do better, you know, and, and, you know, people respond to that. But Noam says the event also reflected some of the messiness plaguing the union after last spring's vote. People would come by and they'd say, hey, you know, is Chris going to be here? And they would ask, you know, kind of ALU officers and senior ALU people. And they'd kind of scratch their head and be like, oh, they'd ask, you know, look over their shoulder. Is Chris going to be here? <laughs> is he going to be in L.A.? You know, so, you know, and then finally someone said, yeah, he's definitely going to be here. But you could kind of tell that this wasn't the most like tightly organized, uh, immaculately scheduled organization. Um, so you did see some of the, you know, kind of the scenes show, too, I think. Smalls and some of the other union leaders have been spending time talking with workers from the Albany Warehouse, which is known as ALB-1. It's a smaller facility than JFK-8, about a tenth of the size, with only 800 workers. And it tends to handle larger items, think lawnmowers, mattresses, and kayaks, which have led to injuries and safety concerns from workers. Plus, the facility just had a fire. There was a... uh 
compactor, a um, uh, cardboard compactor that caught fire um, in, about a week ago. But actually, um, a very similar compactor had caught fire at JFK 8 too um, a few days earlier. This is a, apparently an issue that has just kind of dogged Amazon for a while. These compactors, for whatever reason, catch fire easily. Um, both facilities caught <laughs> had these compactors that caught fire within uh, two days. But the, you know, I think the broader issue at this facility is they deal with these very large, very heavy items. Um, and, you know, you could just imagine that if you're not using like the absolute best um, posture and using, you know, the the kind of soundest, you know, uh, techniques, uh, it would be very easy to get injured. And there was a report by an advocacy group in New York that found that this was the Amazon facility um, with the highest rate of serious injury in New York. So that's certainly been a theme of the campaign that um, that the union has pushed very hard and, you know, with some justification, I think. I'm also interested in kind of the politics of the surrounding area. They're very different than they are in the New York metro area. Like, how does how does that factor into the process? Or does it? Is it irrelevant? So Albany itself, I, I believe it's the highest um, rate of union membership of any metro area in the country. Hmm. Um, and I think that's largely driven by the number of of public service workers in Albany, they tend to be heavily unionized, but there's also a kind of manufacturing tradition in Albany too. So you get this kind of uh, intersection of of different industries that have a history of being unionized. Um, So I think that in some ways helps the union. Um, Definitely uh, unions are not an alien concept to people, which can, you know, uh, can be a barrier in a lot of, a lot of industries, a lot of workplaces, but in some ways it kind of cuts the other way. I think Uh, there are people who by the time they get to Amazon have had a union job before and the fact that they're no longer in it and they came to Amazon may, you know, can, can mean in some cases that they had a bad experience with a union. So I think this, this high union density and this general familiar, familiarity with unions, um, it's, it's kind of a double-edged thing at that warehouse. And, you know, the other thing there is um, this is actually in a town called Castleton on Hudson. Uh, it's, you know, 15, 20 minutes south, southeast of Albany. And it's it's a much more exurban, kind of much redder politically place than Albany proper. Um, and so the, the politics of the immediate area around the warehouse, I would say, are, are more conservative, <laughs> no question. And so you get a little of that. You know, you see people in Trump hats and with Trump bumper stickers on their cars. And it's just, you know, a little more complicated than if you were in the city of Albany proper. One of the the leaders of this nationwide union push, Heather Goodall, is is an employee at ALB1. Does that help the union effort to have, you know, a a person who's so intimately involved with this be one of them? Yeah, well, I would say generally, and certainly at JFK, the Staten Island facility, it was a huge advantage for the union to have most of the organizers be employees of the warehouse. Um, I think that was unquestionably a key to their success on Staten Island. Um, Heather, I think, is a somewhat more complicated figure. She uh, joined that warehouse in February, um, and she joined because she had very you know, real concerns about the rate of injury at that facility. Um, And her ambition when she joined was to help unionize this facility. So I think um, for some folks at the warehouse, that is credibility enhancing. You know, you cared so much about this that you got a job here um, and tried to do something about it. 
I think for others, it's a source of skepticism that she's, you know, an outsider and um, has decided to take this upon herself uh, and that it doesn't originate as organically from the workers who were there before she got there. So I think it it kind of cuts both ways. But there is no question that generally the fact that the ALU has relied on workers and people employed at the warehouse to be their frontline organizers, that has been a huge advantage, you know, since the beginning of the JFK campaign. People and personality have been key to the ALU's success. Chris Smalls, the union's charismatic president, helped sway votes by repeatedly connecting with workers outside JFK 8. He'd greet them at the bus, offer food, and generally be charming. But after the win, the union was split on what was the best use of his time. Was it national interviews to get the message out to a wider audience, or was it on-the-ground daily organizing? I think it's easy to forget, but a few weeks after they won that initial vote on Staten Island at JFK 8, um, there was another election at a very uh, nearby warehouse called LDJ 5, a smaller kind of 1,500-person facility that's you know just almost like across the street from the original warehouse. And that went not great, <laughs> and they lost by a pretty wide margin. And I think some of the ALU organizers who were in charge of organizing that facility felt like Chris was basically absent, that um, Hmm. had Chris kind of continued to hang out at the bus stop and continued to sort of press the case that they might have done better. But instead, he was sort of out and about, you know, doing interviews and going across the country and and just kind of soaking in the adulation of, of being this celebrity that he neglected that campaign a bit. Now, I think there were important substantive reasons why they lost there. Um, there's a different kind of workforce, much more part-time, and, and um, uh, you know, people were even more marginal economically than they had been in the other warehouse. So there were kind of some headwinds that they were facing that had nothing to do with Chris Malls. But I think there was a sense, and, and some of the organizers have been quoted in the media saying, like, it, it felt like he abandoned us a little bit. It felt like he neglected us a little bit. So that was definitely an issue in in the several weeks following the initial win. One of, I think, the calling cards of the ALU was that it's independent, that it's small, that it's scrappy, that it it did all this, you know, itself. And I, I guess I wonder where you see both the successes and failures associated with that, with not being kind of part of a, a big labor organization. I think you have this established incumbent labor movement that has been shrinking by a little bit every year, but still generates a ton of money, you know, um, billions of dollars, literally billions of dollars from member dues. And then you have all this energy um, from this more sort of um, the kind of guerrilla precincts of the labor movement, where it's just workers on their own organizing. In some cases, it's not even trying to form an NLRB certified union. It's just doing some kind of labor action, you know, a walkout or a boycott or, you know, some action to raise the salience of the issue that they are worried about. And there's been a lot of energy around that part of the labor movement. And so you have one end of the movement, which is like really well resourced, but conservative, and um, another end of the movement, which is not well resourced at all, but has a ton of energy and a ton of initiative. And I do think there are are times when um, the incumbent conservative portion of the movement has sort of been shamed, you know, by by these younger, less experienced, but less risk averse um, folks who are just kind of like learning as they go. And I think the 
newcomers are sort of expanding um, the um, understanding of what's possible. If you'd have asked anyone uh, two years ago whether you could organize 250 Starbucks stores um, in, in a year, people would have been pretty skeptical of that and certainly skeptical that that was worth an investment of an existing union's money. Uh, but these workers kind of took the initiative and did it, and they kind of got out ahead of where the established labor movement was, and the established labor movement kind of found itself having to catch up, you know, or being um, marginalized further if they didn't adjust. When we come back, the second biggest employer on the planet is not shy about spending to stop the union. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Part of what made the ALU's victory at JFK 8 so extraordinary was the David and Goliath nature of it all. But Amazon is still Amazon. The company's resources are essentially limitless. And after being caught off guard once, officials there seem determined not to let it happen again. They've um, held meetings. You know, the, the term of art uh, in the labor movement is captive audience meetings where they bring, you know, a dozen or two or three people into a room and um, they say things like, well, you know, um, this union doesn't have much of a track record. Are you sure they're going to be able to deliver on their promises? Or, you know, uh, labor negotiations are inherently uncertain. Maybe you'll do better, but maybe you'll do worse. And you have good benefits now. So do you really want to take that risk? So there's a lot of like, just kind of question raisings, you know, I'm, I'm just asking, I'm, I'm just, just asking, asking questions, questions. you know, <laughs> um, that's kind of a, the strategy. I think Amazon is probably a little harder edged in just its um, pretty relentless refusal to um, acknowledge the union, um, acknowledge any progress by the union. Um, you know, as I said, they immediately challenged the result of this election. They had 25 objections. Um, you know, companies challenge union elections all the time, so that's not so crazy, but just the kind of amount of resources and effort spent in challenging um, was, was somewhat um, unusual and impressive. In Amazon's view, Noam says, a union would chip away at what the company values most, control. Controlling how packages get from point A to point B, but also every part of the process along the way, including what employees do and how they do it. I think Amazon has very clearly sent a message to employees that it's still in charge. It still controls what goes on here. And I think we saw that most recently with um, this fire that we mentioned um, at JFK 8. This cardboard compactor catches fire. Um the warehouse is evacuated. They send the people from the day shift home, but then the night shift people get there and they still smell the smoke and they're worried. And so a lot of them meet in the break room and say, yeah, we're not so comfortable working our shift today. We want a little more information from you about fire safety. We want something done about this. But Amazon the next day suspended, you know, more than 60 of these workers um, with pay. But, it, you know, suspension is a pretty, <laughs> a pretty bold step. 
just having the ability at any moment to suspend people and demonstrating that you're willing to do that is, is certainly, you know, interpreted by the union as a shot across the bow as something that worries employees and makes them less likely to do this kind of thing in the future. Maybe this is a, a silly and naive question, but I kind of want to ask it anyway. Why is Amazon so adamantly anti-union? Is it just about money? Yeah, I think uh, in Amazon's case, and you could argue at a company like Starbucks too, I, I think it's less money per se. Um, you know, as I said, Amazon just raised wages at um, you know most of its warehouses across the country, and in some cases, the wage increase was a dollar, a dollar fifty. So they're willing to spend money. Um, you know, they say they're spending a billion dollars over the next year raising wages, which is not nothing. Um, I think for them, it's more about control. It's about the process. You know, Amazon really prides itself on optimizing, on kind of process engineering, on making um, the kind of internal um, uh, the the movements of inventory from point A to point B to point C as absolutely efficient as it possibly can be because they're trying to get you your package, you know, now within a couple of hours at times. <laughs> um, and so Amazon thinks that um, its success is bound up with these very quick turnarounds, you know, same day, next day delivery. And in order to do that, it has to have the ability to optimize within the warehouses. And if there is a union um, that union will have the ability to throw sand in those gears and go toe-to-toe with Amazon and say, hey, you know, we know you're trying to optimize this, um, but our workers are not, you know, picking 300 items an hour. So I, I think it really is about optimizing efficiency. It's about speed, and it's ultimately in service of this goal of we want to get you these packages as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And if there's a union there, it's not going to be possible to do that. You know, there's some macroeconomic background here that I think is is interesting and important to touch on. Like one of the things that has made Amazon hard to unionize is that workers don't stay that long. And then at the same time right now, we're starting to see a, a potentially softening labor market. The recent jobs numbers were good. Like the Fed is trying to slow things down. And I wonder if having a slowing labor market potentially throws a wrench in in front of the union? Yeah, I think there's no question about that. Historically, we've seen more strike activity, more organizing activity when the labor market is really tight. And you can understand why. People think right, like- have power. Yeah, they have power and uh, it's less scary, right? I mean, the big anxiety in your head if you're a worker who's sticking your neck out to try to organize a union or to go on strike is, will I get fired? And in a tight labor market, getting fired is just not as scary. But if suddenly um, we go into a recession, then it, then it does get a lot more scary. And I think a lot of workers do think twice about that. You know, it's not like um, every worker is hanging on to like every word of the Fed's minutes. Uh, but, you know, you start to notice when, you know, it gets tougher for your roommate to get a job or your wife left her job and thought she would get a job really easily. And now it turns out she can't get a job that easily. Um, these things matter. And historically, we've seen that um, organizing and striking just gets a lot harder when um, unemployment is a lot higher. What do you think happens in this election in Albany? I think it's a harder slog in Albany um, you know, as I said, you, you have a little bit less of an organic um, organization there. Um, I think workers um, are a little more skeptical there than they than they were at JFK. 
you do have, as I say, some, um, you know, some folks where familiarity with the union has bred, you know, some amount of skepticism, if not contempt. Um, and, you know, Amazon, I think, is probably a little more vigilant today than it was, you know, in March. You know, I think Amazon probably suffered a bit from not taking the ALU very seriously. It was this ragtag group of workers who had never organized anything in their lives. And Amazon, you know, uh, probably assumed that that was, <laughs> that was, you know, all you needed to know about, about this union. Um, and now they very much take this threat seriously. Um, you know, they've been very, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, aggressive with these anti-union meetings. Um, you know, they, um, they're not taking any chances. So I think, uh, it'll be harder to replicate this at a facility like ALB1. But but that said, you know, um, there are some legitimate frustrations. I mentioned safety. Um, I think also people are frustrated with this sense that like Amazon can just kind of arbitrarily discipline you and you don't really know why and you don't really have any recourse. That's something I heard many times from workers when I was up there. So, you know, I, I think there's definitely reasons that workers would want to vote for the union and workers have told me that's why they are. Um, I just think this this is at, at this point, um, it's difficult to replicate. You know, you're not you're not sneaking up on the company anymore. I think a risk of being a reporter is like we're always looking for trends, right? We we want to know if this thing is is part of a group, if it's do or die or whatever. And I'm like I wonder how much this outcome matters for the ALU and and how much it is a part of like a the larger story about unions and worker power right now. And if there's any way to disentangle those things. I think this election matters a fair amount for the ALU. Um, I think, you know, we've discussed some of the questions that, um, you know, reporters and, and workers and other union officials have about the ALU. Those are legitimate questions. And if this um, this election goes sideways, you know, people will be uh, well within their rights to raise more questions about the ALU. You know, I think... Um, Amazon matters so much to the labor movement. You know, it touches so many industries. Um, and whenever it enters a new industry, it kind of sets the standard in that industry. You know, I remember when Amazon a few years ago announced that it was buying Whole Foods and suddenly like, you know, the stock prices of like Kroger and, you know, and other big, big supermarket chains like dropped precipitously because everybody knows that um, once Amazon is in an industry, it kind of dictates the business model of other players in that industry. So the um, the labor boom is absolutely right to focus on Amazon. Um, every time it enters a new industry, it touches a whole new group of workers. And if the labor movement, um, can't figure out a way to get some leverage over Amazon, then it really is, um, you know, it, it's an existential issue for them. They're going to have a hard time organizing any private sector workers um, if they can't figure out um, this Amazon puzzle. They know that this is existential and, you know, they know that um, that this is a years long project. And so I think would they would everyone be heartened um, and kind of encouraged if they won at ALB one? Absolutely. But if they lose there, 
Um, I think they are no less determined to keep at this and try to organize this company or at least get a foothold in the company than they were the day before. Um, this is just not a fight that the labor movement can lose. Um, that doesn't mean they will win, but it means they can't back down and that they kind of have to throw what they have at it over a period of years, um, maybe even decades, and, and not just months. Noam Scheiber, thank you so much for your reporting and for talking with me. Yeah, thanks Thanks for having me. It was great to talk this through with you. Noam Scheiber covers labor issues for The New York Times. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and it's also part of Future Tense, a partnership with Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you are a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. You can get all your lovely Slate podcasts ad-free. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.